Hi there, I'm AR. And I'm RN. This is the 10th log and the third theory on The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Welcome to the Lore Research Lab. Today's thesis. The scope on Ganon and his homeland. What are the Gerudo hiding within their historical culture, their connections to the real world and other themes, and how is their relationship to the franchise's main villain important? It's time to deep dive, folks. So last episode, we covered who the Gerudo, you know, who they are, how they've changed over the franchise, how we see them in Breath of the Wild, and their connection to the game's villain. It's clear the connections are pretty close. Like, really close. Oh, heck yeah. It's, it's, you know, now it's time to look at how all that information translates to some theories we have on the Gerudo. Things that have piqued our interest, if you will. The, <laughs> the, the Gerudo, see, the, the Gerudo, the Gerudo, see, I can't talk. The Gerudo seem very closely connected to the main villain, and, you know, they also have quite a rich history. What else does the Gerudo race have to offer? What is the meaning behind the seven heroines, and what does this all mean for the upcoming sequel? This is gonna be a long one, isn't it? Oh, it, it really is. It really is. Oh, God. I'm not well, ready. Well, that'll be fun. <laughs> that'll be fun. Uh, but, so while you um, do whatever you're doing and <laughs> listen to us trying to form words not, with our mouths, go we well. could investigate all of this as well as some relevant DLC or downloadable content and real world connections. The Gerudos aren't simply an outlandish race isolated from the rest of society. So RN's going to focus more on this part in terms of real world connections, but they are quite strong. They, the real world connections, they're, they're quite strong. So before we get into it, I'd like to preface this whole thing um, after extensive reading and translating on both of our parts. Extensive. Extensive. Intensive. It, it's both, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think what we, we did a lot. Three and a half hours in a single sitting, just walking around Gerudo Desert, yeah. translating stuff. You know, taken out of context, <laughs> it sounds like you went to an actual desert. Um, oh, no, 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 in the game, in the game, in the game. <laughs> I was just gonna I say, <laughs> you actually just straight up went to a desert and you were just there. <laughs> Oh, that would have been long. That would have been great, though. Okay, that would have been continue, continue, continue. <laughs> We realized in this process that many Asian influences contributed to the creation of certain in-game characters or beings, as well as cultural practices. So, you know, some races are anthropomorphic, but it is quite clear that the Gerudo are distinct from other races in Hyrule, specifically in Breath of the Wild. So first, our background here aims to discuss some other cultural aspects of the Gerudo we didn't really get a chance to touch on in the previous episode. So basically what we're doing here is it's like, here are all the cool facts before we just shove you in in the deep end of yeah. <laughs> weird connections to real world stuff. But yes, yeah, so, and this will include things like epigraphy, which means the studies of symbols and syllabaries. Uh, the Yiga clan hideout not simply being a villain camp, but home to a mysterious Gerudo site from olden times. Oh, so I feel like we're getting a ghost story. It does. Um, but it kind of is. Um, <laughs> and, that's true enough, actually. And the mysterious eighth heroine statue found in the snowy hairlines and one piece of a trio of labyrinths spread across Hyrule in Breath of the Wild, the South Lomay Labyrinth. 
Okay, we are going to discuss um, in more detail how, based on the findings from the guidebook that I, you know, that I reference so often, and notes from the developers. This has uh, to do more with Breath of the Wild, since there are so many notes on the creation of basically every creature, being character, you name it. Where I am concerned with the developer notes are the Divine Beast and other notes about the Gerudo, and right now we're just going to have some back-and-forth fun observations that RN and I made. Uh, hit it off for us now. Great, I will. Okay, so, um, just as a interesting factoid that I found out uh, in my research to, to do with kind of how the Gerudo relate to the rest of Hyrule, this is a direct quote from Zeldapedia, and it says, The Gerudo apparently worshipped Hylia in the past, no more modern Gerudo have apparently lost faith in her, with her goddess statue in Gerudo Town having become neglected. If you go down one of the little side alleys, you can kind of find it there, and it's mm-hmm. covered in like moss. And the only person you ever see come near it is this old woman that sits next to it every day and night, saying she's keeping a company. Always Which, there. in hindsight, is slightly creepy. But anyway, <laughs> um, the seven heroines are considered divine protectors of the Grudo people, though an eighth heroine is also apparently rumored to be worshipped by a certain sect of their population. The Grudo also have a history of playing spirits of the deceased for help or guidance which may be related to the re- religious practices once held at the spirit temple in the distant past. So, if you'll remember from last episode, the spirit temple is from Ocarina of Time. So, the spirit temple, and we've already established that this game is very much concerned with its own history, right? In terms of Ruto um, and Urbosa even to an extent, having those ancient lineages, um, sorry, Ruto and Naburu eventually translating to Mifa and Urbosa, right? We already know this is established. Let me tell you something funny that I kind of noticed about the Spirit Temple. So when you see the facade of the, the front, the frontal facade of the Spirit Temple in Ocarina of Time, it's a lone female statue with a snake, um, uh, a snake around her. Is it on top of her head? I think so. It's almost like it's like the the. It's on top of a head or around her neck or it's, something. Yeah, the, 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 the snake kind of weaves itself around. It's like a cobra. It looks like a cobra, and um, the female statue is sitting cross-legged with her hands outstretched. Um, so why is the snake important to mention? Well, it's really interesting because um, the one of the proto-Greek cultures out there in terms of ancient ancient Greece. One of the proto-Greek cultures, there was the Mycenaeans before them, but way before the Mycenaeans were the Minoans. So the Minoans are interesting because they were huge on religion and things like that. And I couldn't help but notice this with the Gerudo, like the, the Desert Colossus statue. She is a snake around her, right? Well, the Minoans actually quite like their snake goddesses. One of the few deities we actually have that are, you know that are noteworthy from Minoans are are this is this kind of imagery of a woman with some kind of snake imagery. There's lots of animal imagery to be honest, such as goats, like mountain goats, and even octopus, like even an octopus. Like they kind of I don't know they, they it was really creative for for like second millennium BCE or whatever. But I couldn't help but notice that the idea of like a snake goddess or snake deity, especially them being a female figure because there is an implied matriarchy in the Minoan kind of religion system, but it's not entirely clear because it's so old and it's not easy for us to explain whether that matriarchy really did exist or not. But similar to the Gerudo, it it seemed the women kind of had the greater bearing over society and for it to be a snake deity too, like a snake goddess almost, I don't know, that that was just an interesting thing that I also noticed. Seems relevant. 
to it seemed relevant yeah and i just realized that while while, um uh we were going over our notes and then i kind of i don't know i might have been talking to someone about this and then i'm like oh my god the minoans and then yeah yeah, this 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 happened that's very interesting so um hate for Brokoff is a very interesting discussion, but we should yeah. probably move on before this episode. Oh, we should continue. I just like Minoan snake goddesses are interesting, I think. Yes. So, um, <laughs> interesting thing with Breath of the Wild, actually. Um, so, there's always, as far as I know, at least from the limited amount of games I've played in this series, uh, there's always been, whenever the Gerudo have turned up in games, there's always been Gerudo script. That's always been a thing, as mm-hmm. far as I know. Yeah. Um, but this game, is the very first time you actually get a distinct language yes. because you you've always had the Gerudo script, but now we actually get um, a distinct different words like regional words. They still speak the same language generally as everyone else, but they have their own unique subset of words. I guess you could always say it's like a regional thing. Yes, like it's a little regional language. So uh, here I've got a little list of word new to the games from Breath of the Wild and I apologize in advance for probably almost definitely butchering the pronunciation of these. I am sorry. That's okay. That's okay. Um, so bi is the Gruner word for females or women. So you first would hear this for example when you try to enter Gerudo town and then someone kicks you out and says only women are allowed in here but instead of saying women they say bi. Uh, Bo is male, again, you can imagine the context, um, and the rest of these are pretty much you just, uh, see when talking to various people around Grudo Town and in Karakara Bazaar, so Baba is grandmother, Bebe is child, and then this is an interesting one, so you, if you talk to this woman who is serving this customer who was from uh, a Rito village, you hear her say the word bur, and it's unclear in the game whether this means bird or it means Rito specifically, but as far as I can tell from the different sources I've seen, it's pretty much um, a consensus that it means bird, not Rito, and they just kind of refer to the Rito as the Rito, rather than having their own regional term for that. Yeah. And then, so, um, Saba Saba and Saba Otter are hello, and I can't. I think I think it's like it's like a difference, but it might be a time of day thing. Oh no, I think it's like like you run into the occasional Gerudo traveler, and I hear they have like an accentation to it. It's like Sabata or something like that. Like they actually like the whoever voiced the Gerudo, um, those just random merchants that you can find in Hyrule. Whoever voiced them, they probably went through some trouble of trying to actually convey an accent of some kind. So, um, yeah, Hmm. I, I remember that for some reason. I don't know. So it's Saba Saba. An uh, interesting thing I will put in here now that we're talking about language. Uh, quite similarly to Spanish, actually, a lot, uh, depending, it kind of depends on the context, they're not quite the same as Spain Spanish, but um, off, quite often the B in the V in the, it's a B, so it's Saba Saba rather than, because it's spelt S A B, but it's actually Saba Saba rather than. It's not like you speak the language naturally anyway. <laughs> well, exactly. There you go. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, to move on, uh, Sour Orc is goodbye, and Sarkoso is gratitude, which is like, thanks or thank you, 
like general I am thankful for the thing you have given me or you have done for me generally those, those are the words I found that were interesting and I thought would bring up just as a side note because you know you went off on that rant about Manila so I'm going to go off on a language rant so um, I think the thing I probably found most interesting especially like with this particular subset of words so obviously you will notice a lot of the words have V's in them mm-hmm. that just just from a linguistics perspective is really interesting mm-hmm. I mean I know I know it's an in-game language but I still it's still interesting anyway uh, that's interesting from a linguistics perspective because mm-hmm. V unless you haven't noticed which you probably have not a lot of words including in other languages have a lot of Bs in them, it tends to be a quite uncommon letter. To even start a word off languages, Especially to start, just in any context, I think it's like V and X are the least used letters of the alphabet in any word ever. I've so, that, that, yeah, that's that's an idea. Yeah, that's cool. Um, uh, also, another thing is the use of apostrophes. You don't, especially, because it uses because the language, I mean, obviously, the, I'm looking at the English translation of the game, but um, the language uses English letters for the thing, and apostrophes aren't normally a thing you get, so even in translated into English languages. From That's my from my limited detail. knowledge, from my limited knowledge of ancient Greek, this is kind of interesting. So, because they didn't have the letter H, for example, to indicate that a word began with that letter to produce that huh sound, that hard huh sound, there are um, two different kinds of accents that you put on letters and, you know, there's a bunch of rules and stuff, but um, it's called rough yeah. breathing and, and uh, smooth breathing. And rough breathing would indicate that it does start with a huh sound. But um, if it's smooth breathing, it's just because all vowels have to have that for some reason. It's kind of arbitrary, but um, for a name like Homer, for example, you would need to have a rough breathing sign around it to indicate that that, in fact, does start with an H sound. Um, it's kind of yeah. interesting because these breathing sounds look like apostrophes. So it's almost yeah. like this is the Gerudo version of accentation or indicating that there is some kind of accent to be made. So again, from a language perspective, it is kind of interesting. Those that use it, yeah. apostrophes. Um, Another thing before we quickly move on um, mm-hmm. is the use of double letters. So double letters in English aren't particularly a very unusual thing. You get it every time you make a word plural or you add an ed on the end. Like you just kind of chuck them around everywhere. Mm-hmm. But especially, I, I'm going to talk about Spanish now because even though it doesn't bear much resemblance to Spanish, it's the language I'm most familiar with outside of an English context. Um, and the interesting thing about double letters in Spanish is you have to, they don't really come around all that often because you have to double pronounce them. There isn't anything like just a T and a double T sounds the same. Uh, for example, words like, um, words with double C's in them, uh, especially ones with the C as a su, you'll have to go sucker. Mm-hmm. So the first C will be a su and sound in the second C will be a sound. So that's, so those are all things you would kind of come across if you were 
analyzing the language from a linguistic perspective. And but I've probably thought about this a long, well, so long time. I got one more comment for you in terms of um, sab Saba yeah. and Sabota, uh, for example. So in Japanese, um, because it's obviously, it's, it's um, this is the English writing of these um, words, obviously, in the Gerudo language. But um, in Japanese, if you have two vowels next to each other kind of thing, it, it doesn't appear, um, you, don't, you you actually get combinations like that. Like, I think there's like a surname called uh, Masaki or something like that, and it has two A's or something. There are some names out there in, in Japanese that actually have double letters, like an AA right beside each other. But typically, if, if there's two of the same sounds, it probably means it's an elongated sound, almost like a diphthong, if you will. Um, yeah. And uh, to stress that, there would usually be some kind of accentation over it. And contrast to that, Savokta has a hard t sound, right? It's like a tutting, like t sound, right? Yeah. Um, so in Japanese, if you were to almost write that kind of word out, there's also characters to indicate that it is a hard sound. Um, so I don't know, that's also something I observed. And considering this yeah. is made in Japan, um, they must have yeah. considered their own language in the process when coming up with these. Yeah. I want to say it's quite interesting because I've only just noticed that we said the word out loud. Otter, you are pronouncing that twice. It's Ottenta, that's why it's quite harsh. It's not, uh, the, the, the sounds don't roll into each other. It's the Ottenta, it's two separate sounds. Yeah. Anyway, but to move on. Yes. <laughs> now we're going to talk about, <laughs> and we're now going to talk about the Lord of Gerudo town, which mm-hmm. we did kind of bring up slightly last episode, but we're going to talk about more here. So the obvious one first to get it out of the way, no men are allowed in the walls of Gerudo town. No men. No, no men. No, no bow. No yeah. bow. You can't. No bow. Um, no bow. Disgusting. No bow. Exactly. Um, hey, I, there is an. In, there's actually a really interesting detail that I wanted to draw attention to here. So if you go inside Gerudo town and then mm-hmm. you go just to the right of the palace where um, that's kind of the stairway leading into the. Yeah, Juju yeah. is, and there's, you can see two Gorons sitting next to each other, and um, if you talk to them, they both, they're, um, they, I can't remember the name of one of them, but one of them is called Lindai, and if you talk to them, because they're having a conversation between each other, they say stuff to you like, ha, oh, I thought only girls were allowed in, so I don't know why I've been allowed in, but I'm not going to question it. So they're clearly both men um which is interesting so the law may or may not apply to gorons but it's kind of unclear where they they just let it in it's a bit of a gray area all the gorons look really similar so it's kind of interesting whether or not it's actually been a mistake on the in like by the developers or the artists it might it might i'd actually be able to i think i could you could argue that it might be intentional because the kind of gender not a not a a mistake by the developers a mistake by the guard oh sorry yeah the yeah they do say stuff to you like it's clearly an intentional decision because the actual gorons themselves say you stuff like hints that they are in fact male characters so they'll say stuff like oh i thought only girls were allowed in but i've been allowed in so that's weird i feel like the girls also don't get out much like they don't tend to see they don't tend to they're merchants right but it's not like they go all the way to like the the bottom of a active volcano 
to meet the Gorons all the time. There is one yeah. mission, I forget her so name. It's, but... it's kind of it's kind of unclear whether or not this is a mistake by the gods, or she just doesn't apply to the Gerudo in general, the G- Gorons in general, sorry. But um, that's interesting that's gender cool. fluidity kind of theme there. Um, yeah. yeah. Which may or may not be addressed later. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so here's an interesting rule, actually, because, um, I mean, this rule could be kind of just chalked up to game mechanics, but I thought it was cool anyway. So, Gerudo can't sell men's clothing, and you know this because there aren't any male, male clothing stores inside of the town, but if you manage to find the Gerudo secret club and you have to go through this whole side quest mm-hmm. to find the password and stuff, you'll go inside and that's where they sell men's clothing, included, including the desert bow set, which is, I have to say, one of the coolest pieces of armor ever. Like it's, it's technically not much armor in terms of like quantity, but the design so cool. itself, the design itself is really cool. And truth be told, you're in a desert, you can't be wearing too much, otherwise you'll just get weighed down and you'll be way more fatigued. So it's somewhat exactly. practical. I mean, it, yeah, I, I don't know. It looks, it looks hella cool anyway. It um, does, it does, it does. But, right, so, the, the funny thing about this rule is, is it, the clothing rule appears not to apply to foreign merchants uh, mm. or buying from foreign merchants because you can go up to any vendor in Gerudo Town and you can say to them and you can sell them armor sets and it they don't bat an eyelash they're not even like uh, it, it probably eyelash. has some good resale value right they would find a way to exactly um, sell it again or something. so I mean you could probably chalk that up game mechanics there's not really any observable way to see anyone else in Gerudo Town selling stuff and it would be a bit inconvenient if the only place you could sell armor in Gerudo Town was in the Gerudo Secret Club. Mm-hmm. You could you could chuck that one up to game mechanics but I thought it was cool how the law doesn't prohibit the Gerudo, at least as far as I can tell it doesn't prohibit them from buying it, uh, it just prohibits them from selling it, and it's just the Gerudo themselves, they just can't sell it. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was kind of cool. Yes. Um, so they can buy it, they just can't sell it back again. So, that's, yes. that's quite cool. <laughs> you so, wanted- yes. so, There's a next point. This is- yeah. Yes, so, this is a slight, this isn't a law so much as it relates to a law, mm-hmm. but so, you know, no men are allowed in Gerudo Town. No so when you No hope. So, when you first arrive in Gerudo Town, you have to do that whole side quest to get the Thunderhelm, right? Mm-hmm. At the, the Yiga Clan hideout in Corrosive Alley, it's, yes, that's correct. It's been stolen by the Yiga. So, <laughs> I was doing some research, and then I just kind of formulated a little mini-theory. little mini-theory here for you guys. Oh, mini-theory. About how... Yeah, about how this could have happened in the first place. Yes, because so, it's never explained. It's never explained. It's never explained, and you never know how they got past the gods. But here's my little mini theory, right? So, mm-hmm. when you actually fight the Yiga, you I I only realized this while doing research. But the Yiga have no definable gender. They're just in suits with a thing covering their face. And I mean, you can. I mean, the archers are smaller, and the dudes with big swords are bigger, but other than that, that's, that's, there's nothing 
There is some kind of muscle definition on them, so they may appear to be male, but if they're disguised as, um, like, just a traveler, and the traveler are of varying genders, like man, woman, or whatever, like, it, 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 exactly. it's actually still not clear, because you could be that fit, you could be lean, lean, like that, and still not necessarily look, like, be all that masculine, for example. Like, if you take Link's appearance, for example, exactly. he's he is kind of muscular, but not really. He's more lean, but... Bit, you know what I mean? So, like, so it's not, it's, they have no definable, there's no sure way to tell what gender they are. Exactly. So, and then, uh, so uh, just to kind of go back to what you just said about the travelers by the right side of the road thing. Mm-hmm. So when you're traveling around Hyrule, mm-hmm. you'll, you can like, sometimes see Hylian women or men, mm-hmm. it varies, they're standing by the side of the road. And if you get too close to them, or if you actually stop like an idiot, like I did the first time I saw one of these. I guys, remember I that. I remember that. Oh, those, those were the days. Yeah, those were so days. naive. Exactly. Um, and you have a conversation with one of them. They'll say, they'll have to start off nice and normal. But then suddenly you'll realize you're not allowed to leave the conversation. And then you get slightly nervous. And they stuff, say stuff about the Giga clan. And they talk about how they're going to kill you. And then they... They're, they're like, oh, yeah. you don't want bananas? Time to take your life. And then the music changes. <laughs> and then the music changes to uh, the enemy music, and they turn into Yiga clan members. Uh, and it tends to be it tends to be Yiga artists, but I've seen a few of the sword wielding people as well. Oh but yeah, it, yeah. It does. It doesn't. Cause I've I I but I've seen uh, sword people disguised as women, and I've seen them disguised as men as well. So I have no definable way to tell. If and they have to, any to further to further obscure way. to further obscure this question of genders among the Yiga, for example, after a certain point in the game, it's like the game also realizes that you are a lot stronger than you were when you first started. You have better armor, better weapons, that kind of thing. You encounter the Yiga clan a lot more once you get to that stage. Um, like let's say you have more hearts, or you just have better weapons, or you oh, have a lot of shrines. It's like an implicit thing the game does. Yeah, yeah and it's a big, it's a, there's a really big kick after you defeat the Giga Clan hideout. They're like, oh, you defeated the Giga Clan hideout? You're clearly equipped to deal with all of the Giga Clan now. So, yeah, okay. agreed. It's like, it's like you flesh them all out back into the open and they're way more incentivized to kill you. But here's the thing is, I remember this is uh, in, in one of my more recent kind of playthroughs, because uh, I started a new file recently and I was just um, kind of going through and I was adventuring Hyrule and I was challenging myself a little bit. Like I didn't actually have a very strong armor. Um, or, or sorry, very strong armor or good weapons. But I was adventuring around and I was gonna come up on, upon this uh, Bacoblin camp. You know what Bacoblins are if you listen to my extra on Monsters in the Wild. But Bacoblins, they're just, they, they set up, sometimes they set up relatively large camps with lots of loot and food and, but there tends to be more, the bigger the camp, makes sense. One time I was creeping up on a camp and I was just hiding behind a tree and I was planning to snipe one of their kind of lookout guys, right? Then all of a sudden, one of the, the, the Yiga clan members ambushed me and it, it was the Yiga clan one with the with the wind cleaver. Yes. You, you know, guys. those guys are the most annoying, right? So then I got I got really nervous because I'm like, I only have like four hearts, <laughs> okay? I only oh, have like, no. or, or five hearts or something. I didn't have that many. I, I didn't have many, very many hearts. My armor wasn't that good. And 
if if I got too close to the enemy camp, they would have noticed me too and come to fight me while this thing is fighting me and I don't need two of this at once, especially when I'm this relatively low level. Like the only reason I'm able to hold out is because I, I've played the game enough times that I know what to do, but it's like I don't want to deal with both of them at once, right? So they, they could just kind of come up spontaneously or something like that. That was a bit more random. Yeah. That doesn't really follow my idea that, oh, depending on how far you get in the game, um, it will make sure they, they come out more. But sometimes it might just happen literally just like that you know it could just be okay so back to the mini theory back to the yeah back to your mini theory yeah, sorry so, sorry for the digression no it's fine uh, so you know we've discussed they can disguise themselves as women or men highly admitted women or men as the giga clan members mm-hmm. so my mini theory is that the giga clan members actually disguise themselves as highly in women snuck into gerudo town and then like because redo hold audience with people yes. like um, that's the thing. So, uh, snuck in, ha- got an audience with Riju, because they can also do the weird teleporting thing too. Yeah, they have this then, kind of almost talisman kind of thing where they, they can yeah. move from one place to another within a span of three seconds. Yes, so, but that's... I've never seen them walk long distances, so um, I've only ever seen them walk, walk from like in front of you to behind you, so I'm not sure if they can do it long distance or not. And then basically walk to right to the Thunderhelm, taking the Thunderhelm and then teleported out of Gerudo Town. So the thing is, the thing is, this could that kind of thing, your theory is interesting because if you think about it, think about what happens when you battle just a normal Giga clan member, right? Um, Depending on like the kind of battle you have with them, first they'll they'll disappear when they first reveal themselves, then they'll reappear again, then if you get a couple hits on them, then they'll still be there and you try and keep getting hits. If they still have some health left, they'll disappear again, then reappear, and they kind of follow the same pattern of disappearing and reappearing until you basically defeat them, right? Um, and the thing yeah. is that even when you beat them, they leave behind um, money and bananas. Bananas, of course. Um, makes total sense. Yeah. But they, when they, when you defeat them, they just dis- they disappear. They don't technically die, quote unquote. Like you know how when you defeat Bacoblins, for example, they kind of they'll like it kind of explode in mass. Yeah, they, they, or they kind of disintegrate or something. Like it's like the form's taking apart. Yeah. But because like it's they, a, it's a, it's like it's a definite death. Yes, but it's it's Giga definitive. The Giga Clan death, other than dropping items, doesn't look all that different from. Uh, like, does it look all that different from their teleporting around during the battle? Oh yeah, exactly. So the way that they, when they first reveal the, their true appearance as a Yiga clan member, um, and they disappear, they leave the battle in the exact same way after you deplete all their health. So it's not like they actually die, kind of. Right? You know what exactly. I mean? So if, you can imagine that if, if you can imagine that. No, I really like your mini theory because if you imagine with Rito, uh, sorry. Riju having an assembly or something, it, you could just have like a rapid fire. The Yiga clan member comes and walks and appears like a normal Hylian. Snap, they're in the room where the Thunderhelm is kept. Yeah. Snap, they get, they, because the thing is, is that behind the throne, the little pedestal where the Thunderhelm is kept, there's like a water fountain, and then the rock kind of surrounding the town is just behind it. So you would just need to warp like one, two, three, and then boom, you're actually out of the desert, and you could easily get out. Because the Yika clan are quite agile, and they're probably quite fast. So even if they can't so, teleport um, very far... Just to flush out, yeah, so just to flush out my little mini theory, yes. the reason I would say they wouldn't teleport in in the first place is because Link can... Link, I mean, they're annoying but they're not particularly high-level warriors unless they've got huge numbers. And yes. um, 
I doubt they would leave the Yugoslan hideout undefended because that seems dumb. Oh, not, not at all. You just tactic. you would just probably need one person to be in and out. They have an extraction yeah. team or something, so and then they would be on their way. Teleporting. So uh, my point was that they're not particularly strong, and Gerudo warriors are formidable. Like they're meant to be one of the best. They're like the best in Hyrule, pretty much. Like they're yes. really, really good. So my theory why they would sneak in rather than teleporting in is because well, a a it's easier so you're less likely to be caught by the guards and then captured or whatever and then b it also makes a statement right like the reason that no men are allowed into gerudo town is because it's safe for them mm-hmm. and then some then the yiga clan members sneak in using those rules and then make steals the thunder harm and makes off it, like it makes a statement now you might be thinking though, if that if the desert is the Gerudo Dominion, right? Like this is the place where the Gerudo are their are their strongest. The desert is their domain. Why wouldn't it be easy to pursue them? That kind of thing. Well, first of all, Riju can't really fight per se. She's not combat type. Like she, like, and the Gerudo soldiers themselves, it's not like they are the kind of warriors that go are almost like mercenaries and they go out on a mission to do a job it's not like that plus the yiga clan they, the gerudo soldiers there's not enough of them to send out to safely go there get the item that's missing um and navigate that hideout without being ambushed in some kind of way link is barely able to do it like you playing as link in the game you can barely do that yourself so um but then you they, can't and you can't overwhelm the hideout with numbers either because then you don't have enough soldiers left behind to protect the Runo town and you can't leave Gerudo town unprotected. Exactly. There's still a relatively small population, so it wouldn't be yeah. safe to send out more and risk getting more people imprisoned or more worst case scenarios, right? Yeah. So to move on from the mini theory and back to the laws, because that was a fun little tangent, but it was a tangent. It was a tangent. Um, uh, it's still relating to the Nova the Novo rule. Um it's unclear whether or not Gerudo males are banned, like Gerudo males themselves would be banned from town mm-hmm. because none of them exist. So it's kind of hard to work with a variable that doesn't exist. Yes. But um, uh, it seems likely they would be, seeing as how we theorized in the previous episode, the reason they're banned in the first place is probably due to Ganon and Ganon himself. So the reason the Novo are allowed is probably because of Ganon. So Thanks, Ganon. Thanks, man. It's yeah. But it seems likely they would be banned too. That's and fair. also to do with that, um, Gerudo females are free to mingle with anyone outside of town. And male merchants actually do still come to trade with the Gerudo town. They just mm-hmm. do it in Karakara Bazaar instead, which is likely mm-hmm. why that place exists. Yeah, so it's a small like little outpost kind of area, resting place, and it's not like they they can't interact with men. It's just that they won't let men inside their society, like they in in their town, to be safe. Yeah. They're trying to be safe about it. It's not like they're too too distrustful. And the male travelers you do meet along the way, onto Karakara Bazaar, like in Karakara Bazaar, for example, I mean they're just kind of like chill. They're just there. Mm. And like, despite all the restrictions on the town, it's actually a really popular trade center. It's, it like, is. it's actually it's the only place I've in the game where you have more than three merchants in one place at one time so I think when you go to, when you get to Karakara Bazaar there's what seven different so, merchants all there trading yes so, 
and the town itself has so many different shops to go to. Here's another interesting thing, is the guidebook has mentioned this, and it's also an observation you can make while playing the game, is that infamously Hateno Village and Lurlin Village, which is that seaside village, a bit obscure, tiny on the coast, those two locations, those two villages, are generally regarded as the two lo Hylian locations untouched by the Calamity. So, you know, no, no malice made its way over there. There's no guardians there that destroyed the town or villages or for, like, for whatever reason. Nothing made it there. But Gerudo Town as well is pretty well up, well, well up that list too, even though it's not explicitly mentioned. And, um, and that's because um, it's talking about Hylian places specifically. So the Gerudo, the Gerudo, obviously they're a bit separate. They're still, they're, they're similar to Hylia's, not enough, but yeah. So I thought it's kind of interesting that you can also group the Gerudo with those same villages that were untouched by the Calamity. And the thing is that Hatena village, for example, um, like there's an explanation for the surviving cities or villages that you do see in the game. I'm just going to talk about like whatever the Hylian ones in relation to the Gerudo ones. Um, the Sheikah, like, like Kakariko village is a bit of an, exception because they're they're technically a recluse culture almost like it's just the Sheikah it's not like they have anyone just coming in there you get some merchants that kind of go in and out but they're mostly use the area as an in-between it's not like they're there to genuinely interact with the Sheikah the only person who needs to do that is you as Link right so they're a bit of an exception right then Hateno village is also just a normal Hylian village that didn't manage to get infected basically so they don't and because they're relatively small like there are actually quite a number of people residing in Hateno village but it's not that much and a lot a lot of people had to flee there to escape the calamity so they technically have a larger a larger population now but their their shops and stuff um they they don't necessarily need to have that many, right? So you don't actually have the, that yeah. many merchants and stuff there. And then Laurelin is even smaller because they're just kind of like a fishing, it's a fishing culture, they're by the sea, um, and they're just kind of there, right? Just doing their own thing. The yeah. Gerudo have like an exceptional number of merchants that you can buy from in the town and are out just traveling in Hyrule. So I think it's, it's the main, it's the main way they make their living. Greater. They also Quite have a, like a wide variety of things to offer. Like the Gorons, for example, they're probably their main kind of commodity are ore deposits. So because the mountain is rich with ore deposits, right? Makes sense. But the Gerudo are also able to merchandise that too by making jewelry. Um, yes. Cool. And it's, it's very about that. Yeah. Um, so that's fun. I have a couple comments to make, just general points on the Gerudo and things like that. So I want to read a developer's notes about designing the dungeons of the Divine Beast. So how how does that apply to the the Gerudo, for example? Well, my focus here is Divine Beast Bondaboris, which we know is the Gerudo-based um, Divine Beast. It looks like a camel. It's out in the designing stage for the developers. It's the one that retained its original design the most obviously with some edits, but it's very interesting looking at it because I think, and you can disagree with me if you want, Aaron, but I think Bondaboris mm. has by far the most intricate, like most complex inner dungeon design. I mean, I would definitely agree with that. Because uh, of the humps, like there's the, there's the camel I'm, humps. Yeah, I'm, I'm slightly uh, horrible, so I'm going to interrupt you and talk <laughs> about that now because uh, you gave me the opportunity. Go so. for it, go for it, yeah. Um, uh, well, so, I don't know how much of this you're going to talk about with the developer's notes, but I'll just kind of bring it up here so it's don't have to bring it up in a minute. Mm -hmm. But, um, 
the design. So every divine beast has a kind of mechanism you have to use to solve the dungeons. For example, Ruta being the elephant with the water and everything, you can lift its trunk mm-hmm. to its back and spin a big water wheel in the center, and that's how you access different terminals, mm-hmm. which obviously is what you do to activate the final boss fight. To there. face the blades, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, and then. Uh, um, Rudania has Rudania has this thing where it rocks from side to side, so it like stands on two legs. If you you can kind of imagine it, it when you rotate whatever you do the rotation for Rudania is that it's moving inside the volcano. That's yeah, kind of what it's doing, right? Like it's kind of yeah, kind of moving it's back and forth. It's doing it's doing like you know when you do a plank and then you lift two legs up, it's do- a leg up and a hand up, it's doing yeah. that. Yeah, basically. Um, it's doing a sideways plank. Um, and then the, and then uh, meadows, you open various windows because you're high up in the air and you've got wind speed and that turns things. But the interesting thing with the boards actually is because a lot of those are very mechanical in nature, right? The first the three, yeah, the, fir- the first three you is all about- like it's mechanic, it's very mechanical, sim- almost simplistic motions. You move Rudania to the side to get that orb to roll from so there. From for the or first three, the wheel with water, whatever. Those first three divine beasts. I, you make a good point. Is that the the mechanical aspect of it has a lot to do with the physical outer external attributes of the divine beast. For example, uh, Va right? trunk, um, Va Rudania's movement, and Va Meadow's wings. Like you are straight up tilting this thing in the air, kind of thing to create different yeah. airflow, right? But Von Aborus, exactly. you don't control Von Aborus at all. You are in Von Aborus and Von Aborus is moving you. Exactly, so I will jump back in here. So the talk about the mechanics thing, of Von yeah. now. Yeah. So the interesting thing with Von Aborus, you'll remember from, I don't even know how many episodes this was ago now, but- uh, Too many to count. we brought it up at some point. But to get to Von Aborus in the first place, you have to ride on a sand seal while avoiding lightning and shoot at its hoops to make it stop. I may have actually not We probably mentioned this. But I don't remember in how much detail. The thing is, is that Von Aborus is probably a little bit harder in terms of trying to, whatever, defeat it in that first died. battle that you have because you have to shoot at its feet. Yes. It's you have to shoot at its feet with bomb arrows while staying inside the protection provided by the thunder helm on Riju's head. Because it creates a, an electric resistant well, barrier. Because she won't let you wear it herself because... She's the, she's the chief of the Gerudo. She should be the one to wear it. It makes sense. I get it. It makes sense, but it just makes my life harder, so I'm not gonna be It does, and it. we don't like lightning here, so... Exactly. So, um... Anyway, so that's that. Uh, so, that's... The reason I'm bringing this up is because the mechanic you control within Naboris is all to do with... with cylinders. <laughs> With cylinders. So, the <laughs> so reason basically, it's the so inter- I, I know, I know. I'll, 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 I'll explain. So, um, basically, you end up inside this camel's stomach, if you will. You'll remember <laughs> that Naboris is a camel. It's yes. a camel, and you end, you end up inside its stomach. And inside its stomach, there are three rings, 
And the things you can do, you can spin these rings in lots of different directions. So you have four positions you can spin them to. And basically, you have to do this to access all the different turn-offs. And then a really, really interesting thing here, and why I brought up the lightning, is because all of the divine beasts kind of have a residual element. Mm-hmm. So obviously, Brewster has water, Redania is fire, Meadow is air, it's a bird, go figure. Makes uh, sense. Obviously, exactly. And of course, is lightning. And this obviously also relates to the the uh, pilot's race and what their ability they have. For example, water is also often, um, like, it's often, um, I forgot the word. It's associated, that's the word. It's associated with water, like water is a pure cleansing element. Yes. And Mipha's power is Mipha's grace. And obviously she's a Zora, which means they swim because they're fish and from morphic things. Go fish! So it makes sense. It makes sense. And Obosa's thing is lightning. And the final mechanic that you have to use inside Naboris is at the the bottom or the top, I don't entirely know the rotation of where this is on the thing, but they all have this line running down so, somewhere on the cylinder and you have to connect them up and that conducts electricity and when so, you connect all that up it lowers the head. So Vonaboris, Vonaboris is in, in the intended order of freeing the divine beast should the player choose to do it would probably be Varuta, Vameto, Varudania, and then Vonaboris. Why do you leave Vonaboris for last? Well, I think out of the divine beast puzzles, it's the one that challenges you the most to figure out how do I access all the terminals when they're all so inaccessible. The thing is, is that the what Vonaboris, the core of, of of that dungeon is circuitry. It's all about linking electrical circuits together to lead to certain paths because there's almost different phases to how you do it. It's not like there's a particular order you have to do it um, when getting to certain terminals in a Divine Beast dungeon, for example. But Vonaboris seems to predicate an order. It's like, well, you got to do the, these kind of couple first, then you got to deal with the with the neck. Like, Vonaboris's neck is like straight up 180, just flat, and it's kind of facing forward. Vonaboris should actually be lifted up. Yes. It's actually this whole complex mechanics because, like I said before, the way you get the head to lower, rather than it being a mechanic you can drop from the Sheikah Slate like any of the others, the mechanic you can drop from the Sheikah Slate is actually the chambers. And yes. the chambers themselves, they line up to form an electrical current. So when that's conducted to the head and then you pull a couple of metal blocks around to continue conducting that electricity, that's when the head lowers. And you have to do this whole fancy thing where you run up the head but then you can't access that when you get to the terminal, the terminal is parallel with the neck. So you so can't you, access it. You can't access it. So what you have to do is you have to move one of the chambers out of alignment, manage to stay on the neck for the neck to move back up to an upright position, then activate the terminal, then move the neck back down so you can get back down and go continue with your life. Yeah, it's like it's you create so, like an elevator almost. The thing is that in in this dungeon, what I will say was probably the most tedious part, was trying to deal with the terminals in the humps, the the camel humps. That is really, because both of the entrances to the humps are crowded by malice, so there is no way for you to get through there unless you try and, if you use Rivali's Gale, for example, you could probably kind of BS your way through it and you don't have to like, do too much work yeah but the way the way the way you'd have you have to get around it you have to access it from the outside and kind of work your way in 
And then there's this whole system with orbs and elevators and to get to one of the terminals. It's, it's really interesting. And um, it's, right it's really I, interesting. I have the divine, like I have the divine beast Vondabors page open in the creating uh, creating a champion guide book right now. Some of the interior notes are really interesting. So there's design notes for the pump room uh, terminal area. So it shows. Um, it all shows how intentional that that difficulty is. It says here for the malice concept, instead of just happening to be there, make it feel like it was intentional, malevolent. So that's cool. Then when you also check some of the notes on the top floor, um, it says things like lightning relic, middle and top floors of room and hum. So then there's the top floor. Um, so the lightning uh, relic is referencing this little orb that conducts electricity. So it, it's shows, like a, like, it's it shows what it, like it shows what the oh no yeah it's, it's exactly it's definitely like that. Um, it's a it shows, um, the lightning traps, it shows kind of the base floor design. Um, I think all of this is basically to say, um, quite slightly separately from the Gerudo so far, really. Um, but all of this is to say that Maboris's system is much more complex than any of the other three of the Divine Beasts because within, because a lot of the mechanics that you create to solve the puzzles, because the primary objective of giving you those mechanics is to be able to make puzzles more complex and give you the ability to solve those more complex puzzles but a lot of those are much they're very mechanical right you move right. your trunk it pours water it spins a wheel it's really you get basic. on the wheel that's why you, you do get on the wheel you move right but the boris the interesting thing with the boris is it's... the mechanic itself is a puzzle it's almost pretty symbolic actually because the complexity comes with the electricity, and electricity is, I'm sure everyone listening knows, is the pinnacle of modern science. So, the thing is, is that with Von Boris as well, what I will say is I completely agree with you in terms of its complexity. It definitely, um, it, it feels like the importance is intentional. Every Divine Beast dungeon, I would say this is less so for Bob Meadow and more so with Barudania and Vondaboris and to an extent Baruta is the interior feels like you are meant to be walking through it. Do you know what I mean? Like you're, you're yeah. like, you have an idea where that it's like, oh, you can like adventure through here. But the interest, the intricacy of Vondaboris in terms of all the places you have to kind of activate and adventure to, or both went through a very similar process. And you, for each of the champions, you needed to have a certain level of qualification to actually be able to pilot these things. I can't imagine trying to pilot this, for example, because um, if you think about it, there's so much to consider. Yeah. It feels like there's multiple different rooms in a way that the other Divine Beasts just do not have. So it feels like there's so like, much space to work with. The other, the other Divine Beasts are very much... It's almost like an open plum house. That seems yes. like a really, really bizarre... Oh yeah, no. Varuta's pretty basic. is kind of like an... Like, I like glorified walkway. I mean, especially with Rudania and Meadow, actually, you have the interior. It's not, less so with Meadow, but especially with Rudania. Yes. You have the inside and you have the outside, and that's it. That's like, did you just have the two rooms? Then Ruta is much more closed off, but you have three distinct rooms. You have the opening room, you have the main room, yeah. and then you have the little offshoot room. And like that's really distinct. It's really basic um, and it's pretty easy to navigate once you know where to go. Yeah. But and then Meadow, Meadow and, and like just to go with Meadow, it's it's the only one that actually comes close to Naboris's level of complexity, in which that it has it has a main room and it has several offshoot rooms, but it's still clear where you're going. Even the 
third time playing through the game, I still got lost inside Barnabas. Oh, it's no, easily. Very yeah. separate. It's and very you don't, separate if, in the if, way that the others aren't. If you don't know how to connect the circuit lines, like you don't know the correct orientation immediately or what the best way is to first approach that dungeon, you will get lost. I have genuinely got lost in Eva. I have done this like three times. Exactly, same. Even the third time playing through the game, I still get lost and then I have to consult the map and then the map's not helpful because it's a weird 3D thing and then I'm confused. And you have to, because you have the main room and yet you have the offshoot room and then the room that leads up to the neck and then you have the passageway leading up to the neck that isn't actually how you get onto the neck and it's all very confusing. And Bonaboris is also a lot more architectural than the other three because if you, I'm looking at the, the design for Bonaboris and this is more or less what you see in the game, is between the two humps is a little passageway. So there's a little place that you actually walk between, almost like two buildings, there's lots of buildings, I can't name all of them off by name, but there are a bunch of buildings that you've probably seen in the world that are high rise. I think there's one in Malaysia that has like a walkway between the two high rise buildings. Oh um, yeah, yeah, you know, like the little, the little, the little see through walkways that you yeah, get so Von of yeah. doesn't just feel like a divine beast with a dungeon to navigate through and do, you know, stuff. It's yeah. it feels like 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 it one, it's an entity of its own, just like the other three, but also that it feels like you're actually adventuring through a, a building. Yeah. It's, it's it, again architecture. Like you have you have the base room and then you have the humps and stuff and all the passageways in between are so intricate. It definitely it oh, and feels the neck. much more. Yeah, exactly. But the elevator. It feels, it, exactly, it feels much more like the dungeons of the previous games because it's where, like stuff like Ocarina of Time and like, like the temples. The other two games, the other two games I've played, the dungeons are much more complex and there's a series of prerequisites you have to do to get through each and access each new room, and that's that's. Um, I feel like Naboris is hearkening back slightly. I mean, I would still say it's less complex than a lot of the dungeons in the previous games. Yeah, but agreed. It's still, it's much closer than any of the other three Divine Beasts to that level, level of complexity. Of, because I think the really big difference, actually, and now I'm only just realizing that as I'm talking these thoughts out loud, the, the really big difference between the Boris and the other three Divine Beasts is this idea of prerequisites. Because with Rooter, you kind of still have to do it in an order, kind of. You can kind of just do what you want as long as you work out the order in which to get to each of the things. Like, you can start from Terminal 5 and work about way back to Terminal 1. It really doesn't matter. But the thing the thing with Laboris is you have to have those prerequisites completed. So there's a definite order in which it pushes you to complete those objectives. Yep. Because if you don't, if by accessing Terminal 1, you act, you access a way to open Terminal 2. Yes. It's still definitely not quite the same, obviously, but it's much closer than any of the other three Divine Beasts would have, uh, are. In All terms right, of that, well, so. that was a pretty good discussion, I think. There's, so, I don't know, yes. the thing about Von Boris is because of the external, internal, intricacy, complexity, the whole thing about it, it feels very, very Gerudo feels like it does to be there you know and here's an interesting is an interesting thought i just had mm. so i don't know how i don't know actually if we previously discussed this but the gerudo are very very old i'm assuming we have we talked about this last episode oh yeah, yeah 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 i think yeah so. the gerudo are very old they're really really old and i actually 
only just had this thought just now, but it kind of feels very poetic and slightly symbolic to me that the most complex dungeon that feels like it's harkening back to the dungeons of the past is also the dungeon that is held by the oldest people in the game. It's, it's very poetic. As a culture. It's poetic. I like it. It makes me... It's like Breath of the Wild in that way. I feel like it does that very well. It, it's this, able to... And obviously um, the three divine beasts... The other three and symbolism. Oh yeah, no, for sure. The other three divine beasts, obviously, com- like considering the way we described them just now, obviously may not feel as complex, but they are actually in their own right quite complex as done yes. in terms of puzzle solving. But like they're much more, they're much. I would, I'm, I keep using this word, I know, but I, I wouldn't say that I found. I still, I definitely found the forest the hardest dungeon, but oh, I wouldn't easily. say I found any of the others easy. No, in any way, it's just there's not it's a much more straightforward kind of puzzle you can just kind of put your game down walk away sit for a bit think about it and then come back and you will have worked it out in the ways that Naboris you can to some extent and especially the dungeons of the past that you just you can't you can't think it out oh my in the god same way. You, you I just can't do it oh my god Aaron, I just had a thought just now I had a thought right so you know how we address the divine beasts, right? What's the yes. prefix we put for all of them? Oh my god. It's Ma! It starts with the V! Oh my god! It starts with the that's a Gerudo word. That must be oh like a god. base Gerudo word. But hold on, that's the question. The the Sheikah are the ones who made all of this. What would they have any business borrowing? Wait, do oh we? Do I, okay, I remember from the guidebooks that Von Boris and Von Ruta were the first ones found. Geographically, it would make more sense to find Von Ruta first because it's in a more temperate region accessible to Hylians. Yeah. So it makes sense for Von Ruta to be found first. But what if Von Boris was the first one made and that was done with the help of the Gerudo? Oh my god. Oh my god. Well, I think. Oh my god! That is something that's to talk really about. That's a theory for you folks. We probably break that one. We'll probably talk about that one, but that's really interesting. I mean, I, I, we can talk more about that and conclude on that, but that is really interesting. I just have that thought. Isn't because linguistics again, yay. I love a good bit of linguistics. Oh, we, we love a good linguistics this session. It's bar. And it's that, and if I say, if you say bi, bo, baba, it's that very hard B, a sound that you. Saba 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 That's because none of actually interestingly enough in this game, even though they introduced a Gerudo language called Gerudo, none of the others in the game have that base. Uh, as far as I know from my limited knowledge of Japanese, that's got nothing to do with the Japanese language really either. Mm-hmm. It's, it's 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 unique. It's va, too, that it's prefix too of va. Coincidental. That prefix of va is is a very unique sound to the Gerudo. Especially like, there's the no other culture you could try and attach that prefix to, I don't think. Exactly. Especially that silent H, which is often a thing, like, you... Because you have, um, especially the word veve, which is spelled V, V, H, V, I. It's that same combination of V, vowel, H, with the harsh V sound. That's a really specific thing to this Gerudo language. So, so that is interesting. 
That's um, really interesting. Because I don't know why I didn't notice that all this time when we were making research no, or whatever. Either. But I think talking about Lana Boris and realizing that is that we already know that Meadow being the exception is that the Divine Beasts are callbacks to um, Ocarina of Time characters. So it's like, okay, that yeah. is what it is. And even then, and even then, Meadow is a callback to a different game. It's a callback to Wind Waker. Yes. Which is the first, if I'm not mistaken, one of the first appearances of the Rito. Yes. It's so that is what it is, right? That would be the call. That's, that's the callback there. But in terms of Breath of the Wild lore, we know that the... I'm, I'm going to find a page right now. Hold on. Um, we know that the Garuda oh are my very God. old. I mean, this is... Like this is, this is this is this is totally unscripted. Like not even like I'm mean, being completely honest with you. We do we did not know this, this was happening. Completely. This is com this is we're not even faking our amazement. Um, unprecedented. Complete this is completely unfounded and we've only realized this. So I mean actually actually the majority of this episode so far has been completely unscripted and various thoughts I'm just realizing but oh my god so but here's the thing right this, so this is inevitably gonna make this episode really really long but I don't care this, we're this probably gonna really have a part three who knows um okay so <laughs> oh I'm, I'm I apologize in advance I'm really sorry. I am apologizing now too so here's the thing um the uh creating a champion guidebook has a as a detailed like t- four pages or so on the history of each race the historical chronology of each race um in the history of Hyrule so let's see, I'm going to read this out, see if it helps us. The following passages contain the, the, the knowledge of period, time separated, these events, blah, blah, blah. There are practically no records regarding the Gorons or Rito that predate the Great Calamity. Um, but okay, that is what it is. Um, while records pertaining to the Sheikah and Zora are plentiful, for some reason they don't give the Gerudo their own um, kind of importance there in that little blurb. But um, the distant past, just before the events of 100 years ago, um, just detail things you learn in, in DLC and in the game itself. But here's the interesting thing. What if the concept of the, let's see. So if we read the Sheikah, right? So in the distant past, I, we have to talk about the Sheikah because that's, those are the original creators of the Divine Beast. Let's see how this works in with the Gerudo. So the history of the Sheikah. Shadows acting on behalf of, of the Hyrule family, the Sheikah operate in the dark corners of history. The legends of Ganon and the Hyrulean royal family are passed down orally. Oral tradition. Okay, so um, 10,000 years ago, that's when we get the next bit of information on the Sheikah. Using their advanced technology, they developed the four divine beasts and the guardians. They overwhelm Calamity Ganon. And then you get the Sheikah split. Here's the interesting thing, right? The history of the Gerudo, they don't have any description here for more than 10,000 years ago. And 10,000 years ago, they don't have any description. It's the distant past just before the events of 100 years ago and then whatever main story stuff. So I think it's interesting that they leave this out because what if the oral tradition of the Sheikah just did not include discussing the Gerudo? If you, if, if yeah. when it comes to ancient history, right? You're probably because, gonna talk more about yourself and what happened with your people, your culture. It's an interesting idea, right? I mean, as much as the Sheikah are resented and that obviously caused the Sheikah split for the events of a hundred years ago mm. and that subsequent the, the great calamity which people partially blamed on them obviously the interesting thing would be is like the Sheikah technology is the hallmark of the Sheikah it's like the thing that makes the Sheikah the Sheikah and separate from the Hylians it's that identity of having that technology and if it was me I would 
be loath to tell my kids, oh, I, um, the seeker of the past, they had to get help from the Gerudo, who, as far as we know, have no precedent in any that technology of any kind before this game and before this mini theory we're crafting right now. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing, right? Is that the Gerudo, they are not builders in the way that the Sheikahs are. They are not, they don't make this kind of really complex tech. Oh, that reminds me, I need to read out that developer's note on Divine Beetle and Boris. Um, you probably, you should, you should probably should do, do that. that. I should do that. Yeah, I kind of forgot to do that. I'm forgetting a lot of things right now. This is just so interesting. I'm so glad we stumbled upon this. Um, let's see, where, where, where did it go? Oh, 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 it's here. Okay, hold on. Um, right, so this is a general note on the construction of the Divine Beast by the lead artist of the dungeons. So he, this guy specifically did dungeons. His name is um, Yasutomo Nishibe. So this is what he, uh, he, she, what they have to say on this. Um, the starting point for designing the Divine Beast dungeons was questioning if we could use in-game physics mechanics to make dungeons. We wanted to move entire floors to affect a variety of objects, for example. Then we decided on the elemental themes of water, fire, lightning, and wind, and created designs that combined with those um, movement. So that makes sense. Um, for the designs themselves, while keeping in mind that these are highly advanced weapons, we instilled the sense that they were tin toys rather than pursuing a cool futuristic sci-fi look. I tried to make them into something uh, attractive, off-putting, but also somehow nostalgic. They definitely succeeded at that. I tried to make each dungeon into its own character using its appearance, animal motif, and movement. I feel like we were able to achieve something new with the dungeons that is unique to the uh, this game, since the player can see the dungeons moving around in the distance while they're exploring and even fight the dungeon themselves. So the only reason I'd, I'd like to mention that is because um, we can extrapolate from that and consider how they developed Vonnevorus, right? Um, this is more a general comment on Vonnevorus themselves. Uh, itself. Um, it looks and feels um, the most complex. Um, they want to maintain that kind of nostalgia, animal motif, all that kind of stuff, highly advanced weapons. So that's one thing I wanted to say before, and I said it, so now I can go back to the mini theory with you. Here's the thing, right? So the Gerudo are not, like, they're not scientists like the, the Sheikah. But what they are is they were probably really great builders and architects because of the various statues we know that are associated with them. The ancient, the ruins, the ancient ruins that we find, and I'm going to talk more about, uh, more about this in detail um, coming up, um, but the ancient ruins that you see in this game, um, we can only assume that the Gerudo are the ones that actually had a role in building it because it's it doesn't really seem to relate to other places that you find in the game. There are and it's sim- it's quite it's similar to the Gerudo. It's, it's similar to the architecture in Gerudo Town itself, which it, you can there's a there's a correlation. The right? You can draw a correlation, yeah. right? So if the divine beasts, when they were made, and that would have to be ten thousand years ago, because as the creating a champion guidebook states, that's the only record we have of it. Um. We'd have to assume that prior to the construction of it, the Gerudo might have been involved somehow, and considering that, um, uh... Like, perhaps, perhaps doing the architecture and the, the actual building work itself, and then the... They could have very well been the designers, right? They could have been the designers, which brings me to a bit of a more random point, which is, um... This is to speak to Gerudo complexity as well, but I'm, I'm just going to briefly talk about the city waterways of Gerudo Town. If you think about, like, and you know this too from uh, yeah, 
from your own experience is that the waterways of Gerudo Town are very complex, right? In terms of the way water circulates um, from the main oasis behind the throne to basically the rest of the town, it's very slightly. It's actually quite reminiscent of Roman aqueducts, actually. Yeah, except of course it's on top as opposed to. Um, well, yeah, yeah. I'm saying not obviously they're not exactly the same, but it reminds me of that in terms of the way that they live in the desert and they live somewhere dry and there is not much water, and then they figured out a way to mm-hmm. bring them, bring the water to them. So in what's interesting about this is that what the waterways show to me is that the Gerudo have a strong sense of um, uh, design and planning. Like their urban planning is spot on. This is not to say that other high, like Hylian cities or whatever Goron city or Rito village. This is not to say that there isn't interesting urban planning there, but it's to say that the Gerudos, specifically their way of dealing with things, especially because they're in a desert where water is quite limited, the way that they ma- manage to curate water so it can still sustain their population is, is well, it's d- well done. Like, they, it's a really effective waterway. Um, and uh, that almost makes me think, what if the Gerudo maybe didn't necessarily have a role in creating the divine beasts, but were like the, des- like you said, maybe a designer themselves, if they were able to construct this complex waterway and basically do have this kind of urban planning to this degree um, to ensure... Like, had they had... Maybe they had some input in or they helped They helped to design the more mechanical... Because the thing with the Sheikah is that they're all about the technology, right? They're scientists. They, they're um, scientists. They're scientists. Partly. They're less so on the mundane, actual nitty-gritty of how this damn thing is actually going to move in the first place. Right. So, uh, maybe they, the Gerudo had input on the more mundane side of things. So, you know, how it actually, like, how it would look, how it would actually support and weight. And when we were describing the interior, right, for example, um... Side of the room. Yeah, the the Gerudo probably has the most amount of rooms to adventure through, as said before. Um, Maybe the Gerudo had a role in designing those because it obviously still, obviously still looks very Shika, but the way yes. the interior design and the layout of it is just so incredibly complex that it's not it's it's not that the Shika themselves are not complex. They're complex enough to even conceive of making something like this, um, divine like mechanical beasts, right? Giant yeah. weapons of destruction, almost like that is a, a feat in and of itself. But but the complexity of the, the dungeons, urban, the for urban, example, like the the internal planning is much more. Rem- I think the point we're trying to make, you're trying to make here, is yes. that the inside planning of the divine beast itself is much more reminiscent of the Gerudo than it is of the Shika, or yes. even the even the Paparico village where the Shika live. It doesn't have the same urban planning to the degree that the uh, Divine Beasts do. But this leads me to another thought I just had, and I don't know how I could sustain this idea, but maybe you can help me. So if you think of Varuta, right, and I'm talking outside of Easter eggs or relations to previous lineage, like like early lineage and stuff of the races, this is outside of that, and this is just about the Divine Beast. Think about the way that the you control Varuta, right, with the trunk and everything. Um, it's quite simple, right? It's also the easiest Divine Beast dungeon. But here's the thing. Yeah. The way they curate the water there, like the way they manage waterways in um, uh, that dungeon, 
I don't know. What if that also speaks to the Gerudo waterways? Because um, the the well, way big idea. The Zora, obviously, their their domain is water. So that this is just an idea because I'd be hard pressed to believe now at this point in terms of our theory that we've been constructing now is that the Gerudo didn't have a role in the other divine beasts. Like maybe they only had a role in theirs, but I wouldn't see how that's possible when um, they're all fr- they're all called Vanbor and Varusa. They all have the Va, I mean, right? I would. I would. I would jump in quickly and say not that this that doesn't have merit, but the other, obviously the other possible explanation, which is a theory I like less, but the other possible explanation for the Var thing hmm. is that maybe Varnaboris was found first. Like the people, they went, they went to the Zora domain first, but they set off for the desert at the same time. And it yeah, maybe simultaneously. It just so happened that by lucky chance, Naboris is easier to find, and they named it Divine Beast of Naboris because the Gerudo named it first. All right, so and then I- that just kind of stuck round. I mean, I like that theory less, but it's another possible explanation for why. Right. So, um, let let me just conclude this section for a bit, and how about we jump? I'm gonna we're gonna jump to the next section and investigate these ideas a little bit more in some more detail. How does that sound? That sounds good. Let's okay. talk about culture. Let's Woo! talk about... Wait, what? Culture. Culture. <laughs> and history. Okay. And the Gerudo. Okay. And general stuff. Okay. Why is that so funny? I'm so offended. <laughs> <laughs> that shouldn't be funny. Wow, well, that was a lot. That was really long. Jeez, okay. So, uh, we are going to try and be as quick as possible because this is already We are really coming long. back. We're going to wrap this up. We are. Um, we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, basically, that, we did just realize that on the spot, and in case you couldn't make sense of our nonsensical rambling, basically what we concluded is that the Gerudo are really smart, they're really cultured, they're nuanced, and because all of the Divine Beasts have the little um, bar in their name, yeah. Mm-hmm. Vart is a very unique Gerudo sound, so it could be possibly that the Gerudo um, uh, had nice. connections. They had connections to the Divine Beast. Maybe they even helped plan them, helped build them. We don't really know, but it's maybe something we could look back on later. And we are really sorry about this. So we totally we're gonna, didn't mean we're to go touch, off on this tangent. We're going to touch more on that next soon. Episode, next episode, we will come back and we will talk about culture and all the things we promised we're going to do this episode yes it will happen we are sorry we'll see you soon folks both of us here at the law research lab goodbye see you soon goodbye goodbye